What causes team names to change over time? What makes a term acceptable during one period of history, but then causes it to not be acceptable as time progresses? We're going to explore that topic with Dr. Joe Squalacci through the lens of mental asylums in the 19th century. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week, another episode. It's me, your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks again for taking a moment to make this a part of your week. Got a great episode for you today. I really think you're going to enjoy the conversation that I had with Dr. Joe Squilacci. Before we get into that, I want to take a moment to go back to last week's episode. We did a team autopsies episode on the Brooklyn Dodgers. Got some community feedback from you. One I wanted to highlight is from premium subscriber Bill C. And Bill had this to say, some strong words. He said, quote, I can't believe you didn't talk about how the relocation of the Dodgers also caused the New York Giants to skip town too. People always talk about Brooklyn leaving, but they never talk about how San Francisco lured the Giants away from the city, too. If the Dodgers hadn't done it, they both might have stayed, end quote. Interesting thought, Bill. I will admit I thought about including it in the last episode. The reason I didn't is because the Giants are going to get theirs, too. And I certainly could have made the mention. You bring up a good point. I decided to save it for the other episode. But, yeah, you know, a little spoiler for you for this future episode we'll do on the New York Giants. But, yeah, the move to the West Coast by Brooklyn also influenced the New York Giants to pull up stakes as well. But we'll get to that. Don't worry. Stay tuned. We're going to give our own episode to that team as well. Also, I just want to take a moment to thank the people who signed up for the free email newsletter this past week. We have some interesting emails here. Uh, We have MVP47Dom, Speeder1989, Keiko Stage, Klinsman J, and Ketchum B. Thank you for you individuals signing up for the free weekly email newsletter. You get this main episode with more links and information to get deeper into the episode. You also get access to the free bonus show, This Week in Baseball History, which comes out every Tuesday. I don't ask you for anything for this. It's just a way for you to connect more deeply with the show and with what I'm doing. And all you have to do is go to rounders.substack.com. Make it very easy for you. And then, of course, we have a premium subscriber option where you can choose to pay a certain amount every month. And then I'll read your feedback in the episode. You get access to an ad-free version of the show one day earlier. Uh, You get to see the upcoming episode list to see what's coming down the pipe Some little extras if you decide you want to take that extra step. But, you know, hey, for a first step, sign up for the weekly email. It's a great, you know, thing that you can do to be able to get more involved. And I'm testing out something. If you're a Spotify listener and you don't want to get the email and you just want to be able to get the ad-free episodes and get access to the bonus episode, I did turn on the premium subscription option so you can actually write in Spotify, sign up as a paid subscriber and just get the episodes and skip the emails. That's an option too. Just throwing it out there for you to check out if that sounds interesting. Okay. So without further ado, let's get into our topic for today. 
we're going to tackle the very confusing topic of why team names change over time. What causes a team name to be acceptable at one part of history and then what causes that sentiment to change over time. And we're going to be looking at through the lens of a team called the Jacksonville Lunatics and look at the overall trend of uh, mental health institutions in the United States in the 19th century using baseball as a recreational outlet for their patients and some of the team names that came out of that trend and then, of course, why we went away from that as a society. And to talk about that, I have with me Dr. Joe Squalacci. We had a great conversation. Joe is the director of the social work department at the University of St. Mary. A lot of great information that he shared. You're not going to hear me a lot in this episode. I don't talk a lot just because I was enamored with what uh, Joe had to share, and I think you will too. So let's go ahead and get right into that conversation. Joe, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate being able to connect with you. It's a pleasure to be here. And before we get started, I'd love to learn a little bit about of you to be able to introduce you to our audience. Can you tell me a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Dr. Joe Scolacci, and I am the uh, director of the social work department at the University of St. Mary, based out of Leavenworth, Kansas. I have been in social work higher education for over 20 years. I've also uh, been a professional social worker doing a lot of different things um, around areas of mental health, which is part of the topic for today, uh, as well as a, a children's advocate. And um, and I've been an avid baseball fan my whole life. So Now, I'm interested too. Obviously, your work has been influenced by your professional background. Talk to me a little bit about the roots of your love for baseball. Do you remember like uh, as a child, what was the thing that attracted you to the sport? How did you get into it? Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York, and okay. uh, my family were all Italian immigrants, and they had a great love for all the Yankees that were Italian immigrants. Um, and then the AAA team, at the time, the Yankees had three AAA teams, and one of them was the Syracuse New York team where I grew up. Um, and so I saw Ron Guidry and... Um, a bunch of those players as part of the minor leagues and um, as part of the Yankee system. And then eventually they right. sold them to the Toronto Blue Jays. And I saw Danny Ainge and a couple others, but uh, I always remained, um, you know, a fan of the Yankees and, and just loved baseball and just started playing when I was a kid. And then of course, um, and then I played through high school and I was a bit too small for college so, um, a, uh, you know, eventually I got back to it by coaching my own kids teams and, and now mm-hmm. doing research on it. And of course, uh, a consumer of all things baseball. So, so Joe, just to frame everything for our, our listeners for today, you and I connected via social media through Instagram, and you had mentioned to me a previous work that you had done about the, the nature of baseball team names changing over time based on societal, cultural, uh, you know, uh, pressures from here and there. And you sent me a PDF about a work that you did on a team called the Jacksonville Lunatics, and I found it fascinating. And I thought the audience would find this fascinating too. So I want to just kind of walk into this slowly to give people a background of the time period, especially to get into talking about how mental health helped shape, especially in this specific region, I think, uh, more uh, attention to what team names looked like and how they shaped you know, regions around the U.S. So I'd like to start off by you overviewing for the audience 
Can you give us a bit of a, a contextual background of what was mental health uh, foundations like in the United States in the mid 1800s, the, the 19th century? What was it like to be uh, in a mental institution or to use the term back then, an insane asylum? Sure, sure. And and just to give you some backgrounds on, on how this came to be, I, I've written two history books, one on what are called poor farms or poor houses. And mm-hmm. one was in particular to this county in uh, West Central Illinois, Morgan County, and uh, a town there, the main town there called Jacksonville. And then I also wrote one on what are known as insane asylums or state hospitals. Yep. And in my in my research, um, I came across this team called the, the Jacksonville Lunatics and then learned about how these state hospitals actually had patient baseball teams known mm-hmm. as Asylum Nines. And so I wanted to look more um, and research more of those and integrate those into my book. So you're right. There's this larger context to how baseball becomes integrated into an insane asylum. And right. that larger context is, is, and I like to describe it as a shift. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, mental illness was still considered uh, what I call metaphysical. It could have been because people ascribed it to you because maybe you had original sin you were not baptized, um, demonic possessions. So a lot of those sort of, um, you know, old arcane ways that we we look at that. And there was this shift in our country in the, the mid-century to what's called the moral treatment period. And mm-hmm. in this period, people began to say, look, we're not, we don't want to treat these individuals as subhuman or view them as subhuman, we we don't believe that this human being is inferior. There are environmental pressures and things happening to them that we should be treating them more humanely. And Mm -hmm. so that was sort of the the core belief behind the shift into the moral treatment period was to treat people with mental illness more humanely. It's interesting we use the word mental illness. That's what we know it of is in the modern period today. But I like to tell people it's hard to understand it in the same way. It's what I call a pre-Freudian period. It's They really did not have a medical understanding. Some did, for sure. Um, but it really was a violation of social norms. And so these institutions were created as places to get away from the pressures of society and from you violating those norms into a place where it was a, a safe place where you could deal with those problems and in essence, get patched up and then go back to your life and go back to your society. So then the issue is, well, what what were those diagnoses? What, what landed you in the insane asylum? And they mm-hmm. described, you know, the diagnosis was insanity. And so at the Illinois Asylum, as well as in many others across the nation, the one of the largest diagnoses was religious insanity. So you're like, well, what's religious insanity? And they would often write in intense study of scriptures. So you're like, okay, well, this person's studying the Bible too much. How is that insanity? And so if you're a farmer uh, on the frontier of which Illinois was at the time, You're probably a husband and a dad, uh, a father, and you're supposed to be a good husband. You're supposed to be a good father, and you're supposed to be farming and be productive out 
uh, on the farm. And if a revival comes through town where some fire and brimstone preacher starts uh, talking about the scriptures, you go home and then you're spending all day reading scriptures. You're not engaging in the duties that you should normally, quote, normally be doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, you would see wives asking the courts to put their husbands in the insane asylum to try to fix them up and get them back to a normal state. And so it's, again, it's not like what we would think. It was more this, this violation of social norms. And so, um, so that was, that was a large diagnosis. Another big one was disappointment in marriage or in love, right? So you shouldn't be disappointed in marriage. You should have this, you're, you're married, you should be a good husband and things should be going well. And you, you populate, uh, and, and reproduce, uh, and, and grow your family, um, there were a lot of 20 year olds because by then they, they should have been married, but they were, their diagnosis was disappointed in love. And <laughs> so moms or dads would ask the courts to put them in the insane asylum because, you know, they shouldn't be moping around. They should be productive members of society, whether it's a business or in agriculture. Um, and so again, um, you know, it's, it's a different way of thinking about mental illness, but but it was viewed as okay. These people aren't bad. They're not. There's not a metaphysical problem here. There, there's environmental stressors or pressures. Another okay. big one was injuries. And even though there was a medical profession that dealt with injuries, some of them were concussive in nature, like falling off a horse or a gun wound or some type of other agricultural injury. If it resulted in abnormalities of behavior, the family didn't know what to do. Sometimes there would be suicidal suicidal or homicidal tendencies that came with those concussive injuries. And so, again, the insane asylum or the state hospital became a, a place of respite to get away and to allow, quote, professionals who were trying to do scientific observations, even though, again, it's not like today that it was medical observations. They were trying to integrate scientific methods into observing behavior and understanding behavior. And so these were all sorts of different reasons why people ended up at the state hospitals. And it was a way to go away from life's pressures. Uh, the Civil War had an impact on the nation in all sorts of ways. You did find some soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder um, showing up in them, but oftentimes it was family members who had anxiety about their family members being in the institution, uh, being in the war, and then mm -hmm. they ended up in the institution dealing with what they called war anxiety. Um, wow. And so- the Civil War affected a lot of different things um, in terms of perceptions. And, okay, so, so you have these patients in the asylum. Then what was, their, what was their daily regimen like? Up to about 1860, it was a pretty strict regimen. Um, they were locked in their rooms uh, for, for a large period of the time. And... They would get visited by staff. They would have, you know, go to the cafeteria for breakfast and lunch and stuff, but they didn't have a lot of leisure time or, or other time. They tried forced labor, um, requiring work. Um, that didn't work. They, they figured out quickly that didn't work. Um, and, and I think it's because, you know, they really 
believed it. And it, again, it felt more like a prison. They believed more that this strict regimen would right. um, would would allow people some structure if there was some type of chaos going on in their home environment. But sure. the superintendents, who were the doctors at the time, as a whole, after 1860, primarily, they started looking at integrating activities that kept the mind active and focused and engaged. Um, it allowed um, patients to focus less on their problems. Mm -hmm. And so they began to integrate things like you could voluntarily do gardening or landscaping, transporting water, uh, women did sewing, cooking, laundry. And then eventually they also added spiritual nourishment. They, um, I have this picture in my book of this chapel, very beautiful chapel. They had they would have different ministers come in and meet with patients and and have ceremony, um, and then they integrated physical exercise as well. Mm -hmm. And they began to view physical exercise as a way for patients to then um, exert you know physical activities and energy and to focus less on their their personal problems. Um, they still had a strict regimen, so they would go to breakfast at the same time. They would have doctors visit at particular times of the day. But in the afternoons, they did open it up for physical activities um, sure. and have exercise in the afternoons. And so they had all sorts of different things. Uh, it was a big deal when they bought a, a 10-person horse carriage so the patients can get in and ride around this massive campus. Um, with beautiful trees and flowers everywhere. Um, they could go walking. Um, they, they built a bowling alley. So they had bowling. They could play tug of war. I've got this picture in my, in my book of them doing a tug of war. They had a woodworking shop where they would build these bandstands and then bands, local bands would come and perform for the patients. Um, they had dancing. They also had a theater and the patients could could watch the actors or they could participate as um, um, as actors as well. And then some of the sports they integrated, they had um, and I have pictures of women's basketball and uh, women's tennis in in my book, in my book. And then hmm. I've got this great picture of the baseball field and they had both men's and women's baseball. There's uh, less. um uh, evidence and writing about the women's baseball team. It was just mentioned that they had a women's baseball team, but they, but they had sure. the men's baseball team. And, um, and these, these activities allow, there, there were three reasons for these activities in particular, you know, baseball, which is the, the topic of the day. Um, it allowed the patient to break away from the tediousness of that strict regimen from, mm -hmm. from being a patient at an institution, um, by the, the later 1800s, there was a greater stigma, negative stigma attached to being a patient at a mental institution. We moved a bit away from that idea of the moral treatment period and the humanity of that to the stigma. So people were referred to as lunatics or maniacs or madmen. Right. Um, the, the institution, you know, was called the nut house. Um, you know, and so there was a stigma attached. And so the, these types of activities allowed them to focus less on those negative perceptions and what was going on in their life and to refocus more 
um, away from one's troubles and to how to overcome those troubles. Now, where does baseball fit into this picture of how we see insane asylums, mental health institutions developing? You know, sports allowed the staff and the medical staff, the doctors, um, a way to see evidence of conforming to rules and um, to be able to show that they could moderate maybe negative behaviors, um, bursts of angst or or whatever types of um, negative behaviors they might have been exhibiting based on their their problems. Sure. And it allowed it allowed the the doctors to to see that they could conform to rules. And sports was has always been you know you following the rules, and so it it, it allowed them to observe those behaviors. And then sure. lastly, it allowed the institution to integrate into the community. And hmm. that's one thing we don't think about. We think about them as sort of these you know walled in, and there's a world within those walls, and yeah. there is truth to that. The doctors really and superintendents really tried hard to say, no, we are a part of this larger community and to do things like build a theater and have people come in from, you know, to put on plays or bands to come perform. And so uh, it was fascinating um, in Ticehurst uh, hospital in Southern England. Um, and I'm no baseball historian, but I know there is a link between baseball and cricket. Um, mm-hmm. And um, they had cricket teams at Ticehurst that the patients played in. And a, they, the, the cricket allowed the teams to go play in the local community and then local cricket teams come on to the Ticehurst um, campus and play there. And it was a way for them to be integrated into the local British community. What's important to understand is these pro- they were professionals, these, these doctors, these superintendents. And just like today, they went to conferences and shared stories and did presentations and they um, wrote stories in newspapers and everybody read newspapers back in the 1800s and um, they wrote letters to one another. Um, And so they shared these stories. And so when baseball began to really take off in this country in the latter part Mm of the 19th century, um, they viewed it. You know, they they looked at the stories of cricket. They saw what some others were experimenting with, and they all sort of began to integrate baseball as one of many options for patients to be able to uh, engage in. If the local community, if baseball's taking off in the local community, it therefore would also take off at these institutions because they are and were very much a part of the local community. And so that was the birth of the Asylum Nine baseball teams. No different than, you know, other communities that were getting caught up in the baseball craze, they Mm -hmm. did too. And so they formed these Asylum Nine, they called them the Asylum Nine baseball teams, and many of the uh, state hospital insane asylum institutions across the country formed their own Asylum Nine baseball teams. They could be just patients, um, formed of just patients, or at times, sometimes they were commingled between staff um, and patients as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the Asylum Nine teams eventually became actually just staff. And I read a couple stories that they eventually just became staff. So it varied. It varied on the institution and how many people wanted to participate. 
And um, I've got this great um, picture of, again, of the field and of the players out there playing at the insane asylum. Um, there's also a picture um, in, a, in another scholarly book where it's a, it's a picture of the team and they have their jerseys and it has their name across the front, uh, the three letters ICH, which stood for Illinois Central Hospital, which was the name of the institution at the time. And, you know, great. You know, so they so they obviously they they um, they purchased uniforms for the patients to be able to play on these teams. And it depended on the institution. Sometimes they would play off the institution campus and in the local community. Mm-hmm. but. Um, I didn't see evidence of that at the Illinois one. Sometimes they just played on their campus, but outside teams would then come in and play the Asylum Nines. They would play, you know, local semi-pro teams. Um, there was one in particular, the the Illinois institution played a team called the Cigar Makers Club. You know, so some sort of pickup team, but amateur or semi-pro team of cigar makers, and they came on to campus and they played. They played them. Um, there was also a local college team that came onto campus and played them. So it allowed those teams an opportunity to sharpen their skills, prepare for their seasons. I guess today we might call them scrimmages. Yep. Um, I didn't. I didn't see Asylum Nine teams being a part of leagues themselves. I don't know if there was a restriction on that. I didn't see any type of legal uh, prohibitions around that, but I never saw them as part of leagues or as part of those growing craze of semi-pro leagues popping up everywhere. Um, But they, um, they definitely provided opportunities for those teams to have scrimmages and to come on and, and play them. And so um, so that's, those were the asylum nine teams. There was a report from the institution in 1906. I looked at that said about 900 to a thousand patients would witness the baseball games. Um, so that was probably wow. spread out over the year, but we're looking at about 50 to hundred patients going to the games, you know, at any particular time. So that's pretty good attendance for, um, a mental health institutions, baseball team, you know? Um, so that, that was the background of the asylum nines. So when do we start to see these team names being attached to these insane asylum nines where they're not just known by the institution that they're coming from, but by these nicknames that they're given? Um, I, I was doing my research and came across this team called the Jacksonville lunatics, my initial assumption was that was the Asylum Nine team and right. came to realize that wasn't, in fact, the Asylum Nine team. Um, it was the name of the local semi-pro team that um, the local community developed. And a lot of these semi-pro teams um, developed from local civic and business leaders investing in and trying to create these baseball teams. And they all wanted to sort of be recognized. They joined these leagues. They wanted those leagues to be swallowed up into the bigger American and national leagues that were developing. Um, so all over the Midwest, which again, by the 
late 1800s, early 1900s was no longer the frontier, um, but we're very sort of still agriculturally based, you know, um, and they were all developing these semi-pro teams and creating leagues. So um, I found it interesting because I was like, the name Lunatics, what a name for a team, right? Right. Um, and as I mentioned, by the late 1800s, the term lunatic would have been quite pejorative or negative um, in terms of ascribing crazy people, right? Mm-hmm. Today, you know, like you had mentioned, it, there's something funny about it because it's thankfully lost its pejorative nature. We don't really use language like this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, even today, like when my kids were younger, if they were bouncing all of, over the house, I'd say, hey, you guys stop being lunatics, right? Like there's something uh, a bit comical to it. So I saw it. I'm like, wow, what a funny name for a team. So I, I looked into it um, and and looked more into the team. Um, and I wanted to write about it. Again, I love baseball and I wanted to see why why a community had and a baseball team would would have this name. So when I began to look at how baseball teams were named, um, what baseball scholars and historians have written about was that names typically were their nicknames were ascribed by either the socks, the color of the socks they were wearing, or they were given by sports writers. Right. Because the team management, the club, the players, they didn't come up with the names. It was sports writers that came up with those names. And what teams were identified by mostly was their geographic location that they were from. Mm-hmm. And so when I was reading the standings of these different leagues, it would say Jacksonville, Quincy, Springfield, Chicago team, you know, it, it would give the geographic location. They didn't right. list. If I go into to look at the standings today, it would say Red Sox, Rays, Yankees, Orioles, right? It gives the team nicknames. But back then they gave the actual city names. That was how they identified those teams and how they self-identified. So it was actually the sports writers and how they ascribed those enemy teams. It was a way of villainizing Hmm. the other teams that were coming into town to play your boys, right? And to play your team. And so the teams were, were recognized officially by their geographic location, but their nicknames came from the sports writers. And so how did they come up with this particular name, the lunatics? Did it have to do, for me, the interest was, did it have to do with the institution in some way? Mm -hmm. And of course, as I've been sort of describing, these institutions were very much a part of their community and the superintendents and doctors wanted, wanted them to be a part of the community. And so Institutions even today are very much a fabric of the community they belong to. And so I looked at names of some of the other teams in their division at the time. And one of them was called the Peoria Distillers, and the other was called the Joliet Convicts. And (laughs) why the Peoria Distillers? Well, 
Peoria was known for its distilleries of whiskey and spirits. And um, mm-hmm. they had like 70 of them at the period, at the, at the time period, the teams were playing in the early 1900s. So they yep. called them, you know, the boys from Peoria, the distillers. And then right. Joliet convicts, there was a big prison in Joliet made famous by Joliet Jake from the blues brothers. And so the team was not made up of convicts, right? right? Just like the lunatics was not made up of patients from the asylum. That was the sports writer's way of saying, you know, the convicts are coming to town to play our team. So um, there was a paper called the Rock Island Argus out of Rock Island, Illinois, that referred to the Jacksonville baseball team as um you know, the boys from the insane hospital or insaneville or lunatic town. And the writers, therefore, used sarcasm and creativity, witty writing, um, and it allowed them to make quips and jabs and jokes and banter, you know, to integrate nicknames in a pejorative perception towards that team or towards, you know, uh, uh, you know, the town over. And if you yeah. think about it, even today, you know, as human beings, we have a way of doing that. Oh, where are you from? I'm from such and such. Oh my goodness. You're from that place. Right. And we, we have these associations that we tie in or link with being or living at a particular place. And that's part of culture. And that's, um, you know, that's part of our behaviors and, and what we do. And it was the same back then. And so mm-hmm. um, what was interesting was, you know, by 1906, and, and what I wrote about in the article I shared with you, which is up on my website, um, by 1906 and 1907, the community was struggling with that name for their baseball team. And so I looked at some data from 1906 and what I saw was the institution had 1300 patients they were serving daily and 700 staff. I mean, that's 2000 people a day in the early 1900s that were being served and participating on this campus every day. And that doesn't even include vendors and contractors and employee families and realtors and other types of businesses tied with the institution. So it was a massive economic engine. And that would be the same too of the prison in Joliet, the whiskey distilleries in Peoria and all these different towns that came up with these names. These were serious economic engines. And so those towns were then tied with those institutions. And that's how that name lunatics came about by the sports writers. It's like, they're the, they're from crazy town, you know, and, and, and trying to sort of create these quips against these teams. And, and they were linked therefore with, with the institution. Now we do start to see a shift, right? We see Jacksonville move away from this type of pejorative language, and then we see a trend start to occur. Talk a little bit about that, Joe. Pejorative language is is what came about from the sports writers, and um, you know Jacksonville had always been, even as a smaller agricultural town, a very educated community. A number of educational institutions in the town, um, mm-hmm. and they wanted to make that shift. Um, away from looking at these people like crazy people and more as medical patients. And the community, I think, sort of embraced that. Um, you know, and again, maybe 
maybe as a whole society got away from that idea of moral treatment and treating people humanely. And they wanted to sort of bring that back and, 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 and bring that back to the foreground. So what ended up happening was the low one local newspaper said, we're going to start calling them the kittens. We're going to name, change the name from the lunatics to the kittens. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came up with the name kittens because the previous year, they were in a league called the Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee League, KIT, Kitty League. They referred to it as short. And so, and then they changed leagues. Um, but the sports writers and the newspaper basically um, said, let's call them the kittens. And so I have a quote here from the newspaper. I'll read you. They say, by the way, don't you think that the kittens is a much nicer name? than the lunatics. And besides, it's much more appropriate as we are former kitty leaguers and youngsters. And then it seems real horrid to call the boys lunatics. We've promised never to do it again. So there. Most of your Midwestern towns were two newspaper towns. So Mm -hmm. that newspaper in 1907 that changed the name called them the kittens all season. Yet the other newspaper in town called them the lunatics. Even within their town, they continued to refer to them as the lunatics. And actually, the name stuck for a couple years after that, even though that newspaper in the community made an attempt to try to move away from that more pejorative language, negative language, um, stigmatized language of patients. Um, And I just found that really fascinating um, that a community struggled with its with its nickname. Uh, when I was doing this research, it was at the same time that the the NFL was being pushed to change the name from the Redskins to the now Commanders, and right. the and Major League Baseball was being pushed to change the name away from like the Indians to the Guardians to the that Guardians. we have today. Um, so I guess for me, what was interesting about that was there's actually this larger context and history that um, communities, in fact, have struggled with nicknames for a a longer period of time than we think. And it's not Mm -hmm. just something that's happening today, but even in the early part of the 20th century, communities were trying to bring more sensitivity and understanding to how we we think about human conditions um, and and how we treat people. And that there's potential effects to that and how communities do that. So so that's where, um, you know, I wrote the paper of, about this unique season where a semi-pro team um, had two different team names in the same year. Um, and I guess there are other teams that, that happened um, just with that. I guess there were two other jurisdictions, cities, small towns that had team names of lunatics, um, one in Virginia, one in Missouri. And then mm-hmm. um, I guess maybe... Uh, there was a period of six years where the Yankees were named both the Yankees and the Highlanders. Um, right. I don't know too, too much about that, but I, I had read that in a, from a, from a, a baseball article I had written. So not, maybe not uncommon, but I, I still thought it was really unique and, and interesting and integrated this, this larger aspect of how, you know, we're so in in baseball and those of us who consume baseball, we're so into, you know, the players and the statistics and the teams. But there is a larger context there that they were they were part of communities and and tied in with local institutions. 
And it's about, and, and that does give a, a larger context about what, how do we define community and, and, and how do we, how do we define a particular institution or a particular entity like a baseball team as part of a, a larger group? So, um, that, that was all part of the fascinating interest for me. Yeah, you know, just thinking about what a timely topic this is, especially like you said, in recent years, we have all these team name changes and a lot of the criticism you hear around is, well, this is a softer generation. They they don't want to take, you know, the the names that have been, you know, historically tied to these teams. But like you said, this has been an ongoing conversation for the better part of over a hundred years. Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. It's, There's a larger context here. And I just think instead of us, you know, reacting in a way that that is that that people are being oversensitive, maybe we just step back and we think about that larger context. And and uh, you know, uh, I think a hel- a healthy community has healthy dialogue. And um, if if a community wants to be healthy, they'll they'll want to support a good, healthy public dialogue. You know, and it doesn't mean things have to change or at the pace that certain people want or others. But, um, but, but it's always important to have the conversation and to engage in that dialogue so that people truly do understand what the larger picture is. So, absolutely. And Joe, I'm fascinated. This is such a, you know, a, a bunch of research you must have had to do for this piece. Were you flying out to Jacksonville to get these records from the local, you know, town? Did you find a lot of this online? How did you conduct your research and gather all these resources? Yeah. So my my former college university um, was actually in Jacksonville, which is oh. So it made it pretty easy. I had access to a lot of really neat things, um, yep. people, stories, uh, local newspapers. The genealogy society was really amazing and had lots of documents buried away in, in back cabinets. And then I also had access to some local private collections. Um, I would love to do more research on Asylum Nine baseball teams themselves mm-hmm. and patients, but a lot of patient records, depending on the state, are uh, in lockdown. You can't you can't access them per statute. Uh, in state law because um, they don't want people having necessarily access to medical information of the past. Um, not all states are that way, but some states are that way. Yeah. the I also visited a lot of cemeteries and um, scholarly works were available to describe some of these things as well. Baseball statistics were really interesting. Some baseball statistics sites. I think the further back you go in time, there might be greater probability of possibly some inaccuracies. Um, right. It seems wild because today it's, you know, statistics are so on point, but um, I saw a couple, you know, inaccuracies of, of older baseball statistics, but um, from the 19th century, but I yeah. use a lot of different resources to try to triangulate all those resources to the best of my ability to come up with my stories and, and, mm-hmm. and what I found out and, What's nice is being able to mix a lot of different things. You have to mix baseball with social and healthcare services, with right. you know the politics of institutions and statutes and laws that apply to these things, and and so that was part of the fascination too was being able to um, really look broadly at a topic and and all the different players and stakeholders that are a part of that. And so, yeah, I, I, I dug deep and, and thankfully people really supported the research. Um, 
you know, behind writing about this institution and the teams. Um, you know, I think, I think popular culture can provide us with imagery that might not give a full accurate picture about things. And so hmm. I did not personally watch a very much of this, but like there's a show called American horror story, I think, um, you know, it's like set in asylums or, you know, a, a famous movie like one flew over the cuckoo's nest popular culture can, can really give us some negative perceptions of these institutions, not Absolutely. without warrant, not without kernels of truth or not without valid criticisms. But I think more than anything, what I found was that there's, there is a larger picture here. And for me as a, as a professor of social work and as a mm -hmm. uh, social worker, you know, institutions all have their constraints. And what I really looked at was these institutions were really trying to do their best. You know, the staff went there trying to do their best and popular culture doesn't always give us that accurate picture. We see a lot of the, you know, the horror stories and we hear the horror stories, but the larger picture is that these institutions are really trying hard, you know, and, and treat people humanely and do what's best. I mean, they let patients play baseball. How great is that? Right. And think about today. Can, can we get an insurance company to support somebody with PTSD, PTSD to go play baseball? You know, they're not going to pay for that necessarily. Um, and yet maybe we should be right. And so right. these institutions were, were doing really good things, trying to understand what, what it was to, um, to allow people to strive towards better, you know, mental and emotional well-being. And so even today, you know, your social service institutions, people might, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of people get really good services from the local, your local hospital or local social service institution. And there's going to some be, be some people who might have bad stories about it, but those bad stories are not the full picture. So that, that was something that really, for me, I'm not a, I'm not a natural historian, but I've written books about history and I love history. Mm -hmm. And so I approaching it as uh, a professor of social work allowed me, I think, to, to look at institutions and communities in a different way and to, to look at baseball that way in a different way as well and provide some context to that. Has this article spurred you to continue research? Are you working on anything now related to social work, mental health, uh, uh, healthcare in general? I'm, I'm not, I, I would love to do more on asylum nines, but I think what yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed doing and part of the, what inspired me to do this book about the, the Illinois state hospital and was um, there's something called the, there's these graveyards and the graveyards used to be called potter's fields. You might still hear that term come up at times. Mm -hmm. And basically uh, a friend of mine took me um, in Jacksonville to this big sort of field and there it's an unmarked graveyard. And the patients of the institution, when they died, if the families didn't want them back or they didn't have families or people didn't know who they were, they would bury them in the potter's field. And so there's these big grassy knolls that are graves. And thankfully, nobody's ever built over them or anything like that. But people are buried there. 
And then last fall, I actually taught at a prison in Kansas and I went out behind the prison and they had a potter's field behind the prison as well, where, you know, there's no, there's just a cross, there's no uh, name marker or anything like that, where, where some of these former prisoners who died at the prison are buried. And so one of the things for me that I like to do and, and, uh, and, and what I love, what a lot of historians are doing, including yourself, Jeffrey, um, is giving voice to um, people that, that, you know, were not the victors or not normally um, focused on by historians because they're not the pretty pictures or the grandeur or people we like to lionize. It's more the, the people of everyday life. And, and I wanted to give voice to people at the institution um, when I saw that big potter's field and then recently behind the prison. I, I, that's something I like to do. Um, and I think Asylum Nines would be great. I'd love to follow up on that. It would take some, some grant writing and for me to, to look into that. And right now I'm, I'm primarily administrating, so I'm, I'm not able to do the fun research I would like to. Um, but I've got some ideas. And uh, so I, I thank you for asking. Um, and I, if anybody out there wants to partner on some of this stuff, I'd love to do that as well. Joe, on that note, how can people connect with you? How can people reach out, get to learn more about you, see more of your work? So I have um, a webpage where I have a lot of this stuff, and I actually have um, a section on baseball on my webpage, and I have uh, stories from my book, a um, couple podcasts I put up, I just recorded and put up there about um, really wild stories from either the poorhouse or the or the insane asylum state hospital, um, and it's drjoesresearchpage.com. Um, all one word, D-R-J-O-E, Dr. J-O-E-S, Dr. Joe's research page.com. Um, and uh, you can also find me at the University of St. Mary website as well, stmary.edu. So um, I'd love to talk more about people. I, I've, I've helped a lot of people with some genealogy who had um, great, great grandparents at the institution and things like that. I've done a lot of that recently, which I've enjoyed doing. I'm still giving talks about some of this stuff in the community as well and, and some virtual presentations on it as well. So I want to thank you, of course, Jeffrey, for this opportunity um, to give voice to something that's not very well known about asylum, nine baseball teams and, and, and teams with wild names like lunatics and convicts and things like that. So. Oh, it's been it. fascinating to have you on the show. And certainly, if you decide to expand the research, we'll have you back again to share with our listeners. And folks, I'll make sure to include a link to Joe's website in the show notes so you can further read this article and further see what he's doing. So, Joe, overall, thank you for coming on the show. It was great to have you. 